Book Five, Chapter Nine, of Last Days of Pompeii. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Last Days of Pompeii by Edward G. Bulwer-Lytton. Book Five, Chapter Nine, The Despair of the Lovers, The Condition of the Multitude. Glaucus turned in gratitude, but in awe, caught Ione once more in his arms, and fled along the street that was yet intensely luminous. But suddenly a duller shade fell over the air. Instinctively he turned to the mountain, and beheld one of the two gigantic crests into which the summit had been divided, rocked and wavered to and fro, and then with a sound the mightiness of which no language can describe. It fell from its burning base, and rushed, an avalanche of fire, down the sides of the mountain. At the same instant gushed forth a volume of blackest smoke, rolling on, over air, sea, and earth. Another, and another, and another shower of ashes, far more profuse than before, scattered fresh desolation along the streets. Darkness once more wrapped them as a veil, and Glaucus, his bold heart at last quelled and despairing, sank beneath the cover of an arch, and clasping Ione to his heart, a bride on that couch of ruin, resigned himself to die. Meanwhile Nydia, once separated by the strong from Glaucus and Ione, had in vain endeavoured to regain them. In vain she raised the plaintive cry so peculiar to the blind, it was lost amidst the thousand shrieks of more selfish terror. Again and again she returned to the spot where they had been divided, to find her companions gone, to seize every fugitive, to inquire of Glaucus, to be dashed aside in the impatience of distraction. Who in that hour spared one thought to his neighbor? Perhaps in scenes of universal horror nothing is more horrid than the unnatural selfishness they engender. At length it occurred to Nydia that as it had been resolved to seek the seashore for escape, her most probable chance of rejoining her companions would be to persevere in that direction. Guiding her steps, then, by the staff which she always carried, she continued, with incredible dexterity, to avoid the masses of ruin that encumbered the path, to thread the streets, and unerringly, so blessed now was that accustomed darkness, so afflicting in ordinary life, to take the nearest direction to the seaside. Poor girl! Her courage was beautiful to behold, and fate seemed to favor one so helpless. The boiling torrents touched her not, save by the general rain which accompanied them. The huge fragments of scoria shivered the pavement before and beside her, but spared that frail form, and when the lesser ashes fell over her, she shook them away with a slight armor, and dauntlessly resumed her course. Weak, exposed, yet fearless, supported but by one wish, she was the very emblem of Psyche in her wanderings, of hope, walking through the valley of the shadow, of the soul itself, lone but undaunted, amidst the dangers and the snares of life. Her path was, however, constantly impeded by the crowds that now groped amidst the gloom, 
now fled in the temporary glare of the lightnings across the scene, and at length, a group of torch-bearers rushing full against her, she was thrown down with some violence. "'What?' said the voice of one of the party. "'Is this the brave blind girl? "'By Bacchus, she must not be left here to die. "'Up, my Thessalian. "'So-so. "'Are you hurt? "'That's well. "'Come along with us. "'We are for the shore.' "'Oh, Celest, is it thy voice? "'The gods be thanked. "'Glaucus, Glaucus, Glaucus, have ye seen him?' "'Not I.' He is doubtless out of the city by this time. The gods who saved him from the lion will save him from the burning mountain. As the kindly epicure thus encouraged Nydia, he drew her along with him towards the sea, heeding not her passionate entreaties that he would linger yet a while to search for Glaucus. And still is the accent of despair she continued to shriek out that beloved name, which amidst all the roar of the convulsed elements kept alive a music at her heart. The sudden illumination, the bursts of the floods of lava, and the earthquake, which we have already described, chanced when Sallust and his party had just gained the direct path leading from the city to the port, and here they were arrested by an immense crowd, more than half the population of the city. They spread along the field without the walls, thousands upon thousands, uncertain whither to fly. The sea had retired far from the shore, and they who had fled to it had been so terrified by the agitation and preternatural shrinking of the element, the gasping forms of the uncouth sea-things, which the waves had left upon the sand, and by the sound of the huge stones cast from the mountain into the deep, that they had returned again to the land, as presenting the less frightful aspect of the two. Thus the two streams of human beings, the one seaward, the other from the sea, had met together, feeling a sad comfort in numbers, arrested in despair and doubt. "'The world is to be destroyed by fire,' said an old man in long loose robes, a philosopher of the Stoic school. Stoic and Epicurean wisdom have alike agreed in this prediction, and the hour is come. "'Yeah, the hour is come.' cried a loud voice, solemn but not fearful. Those around turned in dismay. The voice came from above them. It was the voice of Olynthus, who, surrounded by his Christian friends, stood upon an abrupt eminence on which the old Greek colonists had raised a temple to Apollo, now time-worn and half in ruin. As he spoke there came that sudden illumination which had heralded the death of Arbaces, and glowing over that mighty multitude, aved, crouching, breathless, never on earth had the faces of men seemed so haggard, never had meeting of mortal beings been so stamped with the horror and sublimity of dread, never till the last trumpet sounds shall such meeting be seen again, and above those the form of Olynthus, with outstretched arm and prophet brow, girt with the living fires, and the crowd knew the face of him they had doomed to the fangs of the beast, then their victim, now their warner, and through the stillness again came his ominous voice, The hour is come. The Christians repeated the cry. It was caught up. It was echoed from side to side, 
woman and man, childhood and old age, repeated, not aloud but in a smothered and dreary murmur, The hour is come. At that moment a wild yell burst through the air, and thinking only of escape, whither it knew not, the terrible tiger of the desert leaped amongst the throng, and hurried through its parted streams. And so came the earthquake, and so darkness once more fell over the earth. And now new fugitives arrived, grasping the treasures no longer destined for their lord. The slaves of Arbaquis joined the throng, one only of all their torches yet flickered on. It was borne by Sosia, and its light falling on the face of Nidia, he recognized the Scythalian. What avails thy liberty now, blind girl, said the slave. Who art thou? Canst thou tell me of Glaucus? Ay, I saw him but a few minutes since. Blessed be thy head, where? Crouched beneath the arch of the forum, dead or dying, gone to rejoin Arbaces, who is no more. Nidia uttered not a word. She slid from the side of Sallust. Silently she glided through those behind her, and retraced her steps to the city. She gained the forum, the arch, she stooped down, she felt around, she called on the name of Glaucus. A weak voice answered, Who calls on me? Is it the voice of the Shades? Lo, I am prepared. Arise, follow me, take my hand. Glaucus, thou shalt be saved. In wonder and sudden hope, Glaucus arose. Nidia still. Ah, thou then are safe. The tender joy of his voice pierced the heart of the poor Thessalian, and she blessed him for his thought of her. Half leading, half carrying Yone, Glaucus followed his guide. With admirable discretion she avoided the pass which led to the crowd she had just quitted, and by another route sought the shore. After many pauses and incredible perseverance, they gained the sea, and joined a group, who, bolder than the rest, resolved to hazard any peril rather than continue in such a scene. In darkness they put forth to sea, but as they cleared the land and caught new aspects of the mountain, its channels of molten fire threw a partial redness over the waves. Utterly exhausted and worn out, Yone slept on the breast of Glaucus, and Nidia lay at his feet. Meanwhile the showers of dust and ashes, still borne aloft, fell into the wave, and scattered their snows over the deck. Far and wide, borne by the winds, those showers descended upon the remotest climes, startling even the swarthy African, and whirled along the antique soil of Syria and of Egypt, Dion Cassius. End of Book 5, Chapter 9